Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Business Finance Friday webinar. Today, we've got Dawn Riddler from Karinga Wealth Management in Johannesburg. So welcome, Dawn. And we've also got Dion Goos, who's based in London, Credo Wealth in, and he's in a part of London where apparently the electricity isn't so good either. Dion? The electricity is fine, but the uh, the internet fire, the internet feed is intermittent. It's a, it's, it's a high density part of London. So I'm sharing my internet feed with the neighbors who are also at home. Okay. And just for people who don't know who Dion Goos is, uh, you may remember that he wrote a uh, best-selling book on uh, match-fixing in cricket in South Africa, but actually his main uh, specialism isn't writing, even though he's a very talented writer. He's the chief investment officer of Credo Wealth, um, and he has been the CEO of uh, top asset management companies in South Africa, and you know, he's got a string of degrees behind his name, and he has uh, a huge amount of knowledge to share with us today on the global markets and because he's South African he obviously knows what South Africans are looking for. Dion would you just like to elaborate a bit on how Credo Wealth um, works with the, its clients? Thank you Jackie. We're an independent wealth management business although we do work with a number of um, partners on the ground in South Africa. We don't compete with anybody in South Africa but we've got about 50 partners there. So we look exclusively after offshore money. Uh, for South African clients, but also for international money for clients in the UK and elsewhere. We've got about six and a half thousand clients worldwide, of which by number more than half are actually in South Africa. And I presume some people on the on, on today's webinar will you know be from that client base. By value, it's a little bit less than than uh, than half today because we are growing quite nicely uh, in London. We've got about 3.7 billion uh, pounds of assets uh, under administration, and we invest asset classes, equities, uh, fixed income, um, and external you know, funds and ETFs. Um, so that's what we do. We, we look after people's offshore money. Okay. And are you finding that the demand has been growing in recent years? It has. Uh, we've been in the, in the fortunate position that we've had um, slow but steady growth each year since I've joined Peter, which is now eight and a half years ago. Um, it hasn't spiked in the last year or two, I think partly because um, our natural client base, a lot of them have already taken the bulk of the money that they wanted to take offshore, they've done so. So the newer clients that get are maybe smaller clients, and even though it's it's quite nice to have every new client, it doesn't necessarily move the dial that much. So yes, as I say, it's been a, it's been a steady trickle for some time now. Okay, and while we're waiting for people to start posting their questions, um, let's chat to Dawn briefly. Now, many of our Webinar attendees are very familiar with Dawn. Dawn um, has often had articles published in our thought leadership section on Biz News, and um, people always put lots of interesting questions to Dawn. So, Dawn, just could you just sketch out for people who are coming to our webinar for the first time a bit about how you work when it comes to doing uh, financial planning with your clients? Um, my approach is to be completely holistic. Uh, you know, there are one might consider sort of the unsexy parts of financial planning like life insurance and short-term insurance and medical aid and things like that that perhaps uh, you know aren't quite as um, you know haven't got quite as much kudos but they are still an essential part of um, financial planning so whenever i talk to my clients i always take um, a holistic view um, but at the end of the day, the, the primary focus is usually on investment and more and more um, offshore investment as well. Thank you. So um, I think we're going to start taking our first questions in a second. So um, 
Let me see. The first question is from Vikas. How do I get my funds directly invested in NASDAQ or elsewhere directly? Um, Dawn, would you like to kick off maybe with a, with an answer on how you go offshore directly? Um, the, in, in my opinion and, and in my experience, the, the best thing to do is to actually physically take your money offshore. And um, you can do that relatively inexpensively by opening up an investment slash retail account in a place, say, like Luxembourg or um, Switzerland. I, I prefer to use Switzerland for a whole number of reasons. Um, and so, you know, you don't have to be have to be a billionaire to to open up a Swiss bank account these days. Obviously, with with something like UBS and that kind of thing, you do have to be a billionaire. But, you know, with the smaller Swiss banks who have who are just as rigorous, you don't. So my my preference is to physically take the money offshore rather than invest it here and do an asset swap. Um, you know, the thing is that, yes, you'll get you'll get this, the returns and all of that kind of thing. But uh, quite frankly, I don't trust this government one bit to, you know, um, change rules when it comes to asset swap. And also then it has um, when, you know, it has the state duty implications in, in, the, in as much that you might have to bring all that money back. Um, the asset swap money, the asset swap money is actually really still here. You're just um, doing an asset swap offshore. So my preference when we're doing buying shares offshore is to actually physically get it offshore and invest it from there. Thank you. Dion, do you have anything to add to that? No, I totally agree with that. Uh, obviously, we're a business that uh, that specializes in accounts like this. So um, Dawn might prefer Switzerland. You know, we are that kind of business that, that would welcome those kind of clients as well. Just to bear in mind that to get your money physically offshore, you need to go through the process. You need to get your SARS clearance and the like. So there's some additional admin involved. But I think ultimately it's admin that's very much file. And then if you find an offshore provider, whether it's Dawn one in Switzerland, a company like ourselves or some of the many others that are out there that compete with us, um, you know, you can then buy that platform. You can buy you can buy the NASDAQ. You can buy a, an ETF called QQQ. I know it's an odd abbreviation but people in the room or you know watching today may have come across it so you can buy the qqq and you own the nasdaq you know just like that um if if if, if you are that way inclined. i would just say that if you look at various platforms i think the user friendliness and the, the ease of doing business the ease of becoming a client in the first place will differ across the board some are quite sticky when it comes to the know your client kind of um steps that need to be taken what you need to prove not everybody wants a south african client necessarily because South Africa is seen as a, as, a, as a high risk jurisdiction. So there may be many providers out there, but some will be easier to deal with than others. That's very interesting, Dion. What do you mean they don't want South African investors? Don't they appreciate uh, investments regardless of currency? What is the concern with South Africans? It's, it's not so much a business um, issue as such, uh, Jackie. It's ultimately regulatory. So we all as you know, financial service providers are regulated by the local um, regulator, by the, and, and therefore there's lots of compliance, there's lots of hoops one needs to, to jump through. Uh, and when it comes to people in different countries, all the various countries are essentially risk classified as low, medium, or high risk. Um, and uh, frankly, South Africa, by most people, is seen as a, as a high risk uh, source of funds. And therefore, there's additional due diligence that needs to be done in order to take that client. And a lot of businesses will just not bother. They say, listen, we don't have the risk appetite, and therefore, we only deal with, with low-risk jurisdictions. Um, so it's not so much, you know, not wanting the business. It's the additional compliance that one needs to deal with. 
Thank you. Kavesh has a follow-up question for Dawn. Uh, he's interested in getting his money into Switzerland and he says, how much money do you need to open an account in Switzerland? You said you don't have to necessarily be high net worth. Do you have an, an idea of what the minimum would be? You know, $10,000 um, is is a good start. Um, right. Obviously, when translated into South African Rand, it starts to, you know, become a little bit more eye-watering, but it's certainly not you know, up in the uh, million rand arena still. So with $10,000, um, you can still do something, especially if, you know, if, if you're young and you've got the, the risk appetite, because obviously with with that, you know, $10,000 is not going to buy you huge diversification. Um, and that is that that would be the major issue of having a small amount of offshore. So, um, you know, if you're young enough or you have the risk appetite or for excess funds, I'm um, often uh, money that I'm taking offshore for my clients is excess funds. They've got money here. For example, they're retirees. They've got money here and they've got money, more than enough money to live on for the rest of their lives. But um, they take the excess money offshore. And then the risk appetite with that excess money can be greater. And then um, something like, you know, um, having a bit of share concentration while you, you know, add add to it at 10,000, maybe at, at a time um, that that is what happens. So, you know, $10,000 is not going to buy you, you know, the, the full diversification across the, the NASDAQ, you know. But then again, you can use ETFs and that's probably the way to go to start off with. If you've got a small amount of money rather than buying individual shares, you know, rather than buying the Teslas or the Apples or this kind of thing, is just to buy something like um, QQQ or one of the other ETFs, the myriad of them. So James has a question on QQQ and he says, I thought QQQ focused on shorting the S&P, etc. Dion, can you just briefly sketch out what QQQ is and then respond to James? Yeah, maybe I need to go and Google search QQQ again, but in my mind, QQQ is the NASDAQ ETF, so it is Essentially, the market capitalization weighted uh, index of NASDAQ shares. So today it will be dominated by all the big tech shares. The names that people um, can guess, the, the, the FANG stocks. Um, and I guess Tesla is quite big in that as well these days. Um, but it's, uh, it's, 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 it's not the S&P. It is the, the other exchange. It is the tech-heavy exchange. But it doesn't mean it's short the S&P alternative exchange. Thank you. Ian wants to pick up again on the, the clearing your money out of South Africa. And he says, does the SARS clearance also apply to opening a foreign currency account of less than one million rand? Dawn? Um, you know, getting any money offshore has to have a certain amount of SARS clearance. The the 10 million has a higher bar to clear and um, than, than the one million. Um, but my recommendation, you know, having learned quite frankly, the hard way, is to use a forex specialist, uh, people who do this all the time rather than your bank. Um, you know, the banks charge double fees that these these forex specialists charge, and inevitably you have to do all the legwork. You have to get all the clearances and the, um, you know, the SARS approval and the, you know, clearance through the Reserve Bank and that kind of thing, whereas a forex specialist We'll do it at half the price and get all those clearances and um, they won't you know be able to do it quickly so that it doesn't expire because the problem is that if you do it yourself you usually take longer and you know some of these do have an expiry date especially when it comes to SARS clearance has an expiry date so my recommendation would be to use one of the um, forex uh, specialists um, who what they usually do is they put it into a, a holding account here often with mercantile 
um, where it can continue to get money money market rates until such a time as your financial advisor or your asset manager says, okay, exchange rate is not good, move it. Um, you, you often don't get that kind of uh, nuanced um, service from a bank. Thanks. Dion, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't disagree with anything Dawn says, but I would maybe debate this with her slightly and ask the question if it's really worthwhile in her from her perspective to do that for smaller amounts. I mean, we've been talking about $10,000, you know, in the last five minutes. I myself in the last few years taken a little bit of money that I had left in South Africa out. And, and I found that the additional admin to go to one of these providers to, to essentially go through the whole know your client, um, you know, exercise with, a, with an additional provider. I'm, I'm really allergic to admin myself, etc. It's not necessarily worthwhile. If, if it's large amounts, if it's hundreds of thousands and maybe millions of dollars we're talking about, by all means, if you can get an extra 20 or 50 basis points out of it, you know, find a, a better provider with a sharper price. Um, but I found that with my own bank in South Africa, for a more modest amount, Yes, it's probably cost me a little bit more, but it saved me so much admin, it was worthwhile for me. So that's the one question I will ask. Dawn, do you have an answer for that? You know, to, to each his own. You know, obviously, um, Dion's got his own bank account already set up. Um, and, you, you know, with, with my clients, we kind of have a, a full service thing where we help them set up the Swiss bank account. Um, and so, that you know, with all the FICA and everything else, and, you know, for Switzerland, for example, the FICA has to be originals. So you get it all signed here and then it has to be couriered to Switzerland. Um, so so there are, you know, bigger bars. But, you know, fortunately, um, the institution we work with in, in Switzerland, um, you know, they don't like you so much if you come from Ghana or Nigeria or, you know, from some of the Middle Eastern countries. But they, they're quite happy to deal with South Africans. Um, so, it, it, you know, if you've got a bank account already set up, then it's, then it's a simple process just to send out if it's, you know, if it's if it's less than a million but you know the the trick is you know do you have that and particularly with bigger amounts when it comes to uh, you know a million rand two million rand more um you don't want to send it all out in one fail sweep and the next day the rand depreciates um and and you lose ten thousand of that you know the rand is one of the most volatile currencies in the world um and you have to have a little bit of a a delicate touch when it comes to taking out particularly larger amounts. Look, $10,000, maybe not so much, but certainly the bigger accounts, you do need to have a little bit more finesse. Thank you. And the, keep your questions coming. There are many questions. There's one more on uh, foreign currency accounts. And Oresti would like to know from Dawn, is it not good to have a foreign currency account via a local bank? No. Uh, I I just haven't had great experiences uh, with the offshore arms of local banks. So, in my opinion, no. But it's just okay, my opinion. That's a very firm no from Dawn. Let's move on to Dion. Cliff has a question: Can a South African resident invest directly into the Credo Fund? Into that? Yes, and there's more than one way of as a South African based in South Africa with RANDs, there is a, a Credo Global Equity Feeder Fund, which is hosted on the uh, BCI platform for us, with the Collective Investments. Um, it's also on various other platforms in South Africa, uh, including uh, Glacier um, and Old Mutual and Momentum. 
Um, so there is a way of brands, but getting investment exposure. But to go back to what Dawn said right at the beginning, that investment has not effectively left the country. You're investing in the global equity fund in rands, but you're going to get your money back in rands one day. If you want to do so directly in hard currency, whether it's pounds or dollars, you would need to get the money physically out of the country and you would need to get it onto an offshore platform. It either our own or 10 alternatives, which, you know, which I can sort of share separately. Um, but there are various ways of doing it. So it depends on whether you want to do it directly uh, offshore or whether you want to do it with rands in South Africa. Both are possible. Dion, can you just clarify? We're getting quite a few questions coming through about what what does Credo do? Do you have funds or do you give advice to put people into other funds? Um, and the second question we're getting here, do you have any vehicles that minimize tax implications? Um, so let me answer the second question first. I mean, all uh, collectives ultimately have you know tax benefits because you can do your trading within that. When I say collectives, I mean unit trusts. Uh, we're not tax specialists as such, and we don't have a sort of a tax focus. Um, we are wealth managers and, and ultimately fund managers as well. Um, so to the extent that, that tax is part of the equation, you know, we just uh, embrace that. Um, so we, we, we're, not, we're not tax specialists as such, but uh, unit trusts for mutual funds or collectives do have uh, lots of tax benefits, including, by the way, the whole issue of CITES tax, which may have been discussed in this webinar before, and perhaps we can talk about it a little bit later today. Um, but if you invest in our fund or other funds which are registered outside of the UK, then you can save yourself from the CITES tax issue, which I'm not going to elaborate on now, but if people want to discuss it, we can come back to it. Um, so to answer the first question, which is what Credo do, or what we, what, 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 what we do at Credo, we essentially, in a nutshell, do both. So we have our own solutions in the form of uh, mostly equity and fixed in income products, both managed portfolios where the client owns his or her own share uh, in Microsoft and Alibaba and whatever else we may be owning uh, in, in his account with us, his or her account with us. And we also have funds, the global equity fund that I've, that I've just mentioned. So that's the one half of the business. And the other half of the business is we have multi-asset portfolios, which is essentially uh, risk-rated solutions, depending on the client, whether it's low, medium or high risk. And where the external investments happen in the form of funds um, and ETFs from other providers. So we don't invest in our own funds there. So there we invest uh, in cost-effective, efficient solutions, um, and we'll get exposure through a combination of, of funds and ETFs. So, so we do both. We do our own investments, direct investments in various forms, and we invest in, other, in combinations of other funds in our risk-managed uh, portfolios. And Richard has a good question. How do you recommend avoiding US and UK inheritance tax? So in other words, is there a way you can avoid all these taxes? Um, Dion, you're nodding. You seem to have some ideas on that. I just want to jump in and, and by all means, I'm, I can probably learn from Dawn as well. But but this is exactly the CITES uh, tax issue which I referred to a minute ago. So if, if you as a South African citizen today open a portfolio with Credo or somewhere in Switzerland, uh, I'm not sure about Switzerland, so let me not talk about Switzerland. If you open a portfolio with Credo and you're with our onshore UK custodian and, and, and we buy, or you buy yourself, you buy yourself a Microsoft or Alibaba share, as I mentioned before, uh, if you pass away, then you will be uh, caught by the UK inheritance tax laws because you've got UK registered assets in your name. You, you may not, you may never have been to the UK, um, but because you had investments that were domiciled here, you will pick up 
UK inheritance tax consequences. The same is true in the US. Um, now, there are some rebates, there are some discounts, so it needs to be a, a relatively substantial portfolio be before it becomes a problem. I think the, the threshold in the UK is 325 or 350,000 um, pounds for UK registered assets. In the US, it's less. So you will pick up that problem. The, the way to avoid it um, is to still invest, you know, via a provider like ourselves in the same jurisdiction, but where the underlying investment is not domiciled in the UK. So, for example, our own Credo Global Equity Fund uh, is an Irish registered fund. And because it's not a UK registered asset, therefore, um, in that investment, you won't pick up the inheritance tax consequences as a South African investor. Uh, that is the CITES tax issue that I referred to before. You know, one of the one of the reasons we use Switzerland is because of the for, for tax reasons and the uh, inheritance tax reasons because um, they are fairly they're, they're agnostic. Um, they leave you know the, your tax up to where you are as a resident, and obviously you're not a Swiss resident, so um, basically it would be governed by you know your the South African inheritance inheritance laws. But I mean, if you want to get round. Um, South African inheritance tax, you know, um, then you look at completely different vehicles, different countries and, and everything else. If you want to, you know, avoid South African or any estate duty, you know, then you have to start talking about trusts and that. But at, at the end of the day, also, um, you know, setting up a trust later in life is often really not, not a very good idea. And they keep changing the laws around um, trusts because, look, no tax authority likes trusts because it keeps money away from them. So they keep changing the laws and changing the laws. I mean, trust today compared to what they were even 10 years ago, you know, they're much less advantageous. So um, they become much less of, of a tool to do um, tax planning. And the ones that do do it are through Malta and places like this kind of thing, you know, you usually charge an arm and a leg. Thank you. Now, most people have been interested in the FANG stocks, but Guy doesn't want to invest in them. And he says, is there an offshore international ETF with reduced exposure to the tech sector now for a tech-weary investor? Um, Dawn or Dion, who would you like? Dawn? The, the, you know, I mean, Vanguard alone has got thousands, you know, so um, you, 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 name your, you name your poison, you know, the, there's an ETF available for it. Um, you know, green, not green, with casinos, without casinos, you, you know, absolutely anything is available out there. It's just a matter of, of finding it. Yeah. I, I, I can't name one specifically, but I know that the, the, they will be there. I mean, I'll just give one example. There are, for example, there are ETFs out there, and, and we invested in some of these ourselves, um, where you can buy, for example, an S&P ETF, but where the stocks are equally weighted. So just to give an example, if you bought the S&P today, then uh, the five largest stocks in the world, which is basically, you know, it's it's not quite the fangs, but it's pretty much the fangs. Uh, Microsoft is in there, not, not Netflix. So it's the fangs, but with, with an M, not with an N, essentially. Those five stocks today are, are worth about half of the S&P. So the other... 495 stocks are worth half and five stocks are worth half. If you buy an equally weighted version of the S&P, then you get Apple and Amazon and Google and Facebook and Microsoft at whatever that is, 0.2% each, not at 10% each within your ETF. So that's an example, an equally weighted ETF. There, there are many other examples. You can go to a value investor. We happen to be value quality investors ourselves. 
um, and it's a concept that 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 hasn't you know had a had a good time for the last few months and years. But you can go to any value investor, and you will very much get a, a lower weighting in those stocks as well. So that's not an ETF; that's an active position. It's a different different uh, element, um, but there are many alternatives. Yeah, dear, and I hear the fangs and I'll fang man. So the Correct. Microsoft is in there. Correct, and then you can retain <laughs> your video. You, you, you're dead right, um, and and you've got all that as well. So it's the fang itself only. It's really a fang with a double A, isn't it? So it's Apple and Amazon. Yes. But that's why they put Fang Man so that the double A goes into the man, I think. Correct. So Shamir wants to get into practical details of investing offshore again and very interested in ETFs. And he says, for offshore investments in ETFs, would you recommend investing in lump sums or more frequently to ensure dollar cost averaging? So perhaps, uh, Dion, if you could just explain what dollar cost averaging is for people who aren't familiar with it. And then secondly, lump sum or... Rand cost or dollar cost averaging? Dollar cost averaging is a simple term which basically boils down to the fact that if you invest at regular intervals over a relatively long period of time, um, a similar amount, or if you can afford it, a growing amount, then you will get the benefit of uh, the market growth in your favor, but you'll also get the benefit that when there's a dislocation from time to time, like we saw in March with you know the COVID um, impact markets and international markets falling you know between 30 and 40 percent within a few weeks then it means that if you have the discipline of continuing your dollar cost investing that that next tranche that goes in at the end of march goes in at what proves to be a wonderful time and a wonderful buying opportunity even if at the time you didn't feel too positive about the market um so you're buying more at lower levels at the end of march for example and you'll be buying less at more expensive levels at the end of august you just take this year but the bottom line is you get those swings and roundabouts working in your favor because you're buying more at the good levels and less at the high levels. Keep on building your portfolio. So it's, it's, a, it's a very good way. It's very good discipline um, that has very good results if you can you know, keep on doing it for, for, for the longer term. To answer the question whether, whether people should be doing it, I, I think, yes, if you, um, if, if, you, if you have the spare cash to do so, it, it does make sense. I will say this, though, that if you let, – let's say – I want to go back to the $10,000 example that was mentioned before. In, 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 in global investment terms, $10,000 is not a particularly substantial amount, and there's always costs involved with, with, um, you know, with, with investing. And some of these come in the form of essentially fixed costs. It could be a service charge or a settlement charge or something. You know, people call it different things. Um, and to invest $10,000 once off versus investing $1,000 10 months in a row, you could find that those 10 times $1,000 investments cost a lot more to deploy than one times 10,000. So it depends on the amounts involved. So for a relatively small amount, anything under, I'd say, even $100,000, well, certainly under uh, under $50,000, I think once off may just be the best way of doing it. But if if you are lucky enough to inherit a couple of hundred thousand dollars today and you're not sure what to do with it, you want to invest it off or even locally, it's, it's really the same principle, then my suggestion would be do it in tranches, uh, over a few months. And from a behavioral point of view, you win both ways. If the market goes up, you can say, listen, at least I got some money away at the cheap levels, uh, and therefore I, you know, I, I can benefit from a rising market. And if the market comes down, you win as well, because you can say, okay, I can get my next tranche in at a more attractive level. From a behavioral point of view, from an emotional point of view, you win both ways. Thank you. Dawn, do you have anything to add to that? 
Um, you know, my recommendation, if you want to sort of take advantage of dollar cost averaging, range cost, cost averaging, whatever you want to call it, would be to use a feeder fund from here to do that. Um, that because then you're not going to run into the, the cost problems. Because uh, one of the issues that, for example, if you take $10,000 across or even $100,000 across and you put it in a bank account or a bank account there. Now, I mean, the, the bank accounts, like, for example, so it's sort of to behave a little bit differently. You can have a retail and investment account all in one. So your money would go into that account and it would be up to you to do that sort of um, that rent, you know, to to sort of feed it into the market as when you think it is um, appropriate. Now, I, most of my clients, um, I work with an asset manager and he and I um, work together and give the client advice in terms of what they should be buying, when they should be buying it. Um, and they give us a mandate in order to do that so that, you know, they don't have to log into their account and, and try and do the buying and and that kind of thing. So I, I think for, for the average um, South African investor that, that has you know, maybe 10,000 a month even um, to put into it, I'd, I, I'd say a feeder fund is probably a better idea. But find a feeder fund that is not registry expensive because there's some horribly expensive ones out there. Nasty. And can you give an example? Uh, I don't know about the you, but you'll know who I mean. Yeah, Dawn, I won't, I won't comment on that, but we only launched our feeder fund in February this year and we're very much aware of that point. And in fact, if you go and crunch the numbers or anybody out there that will look at the numbers, I think we'll find that we're at the, at the low end of the scale. Uh, it, it really, it is an important issue. So I'm glad you mentioned that. How much more expensive is it to invest offshore than invest in South Africa, just in terms of the costs? Do you mean or what are you referring to? The whole process? But maybe you can be more specific. Funds, ETFs? I think it depends. You know, there's so many elements to that answer. I mean, funds and ETFs uh, offshore in general are cheaper than South African funds simply because there's more of them, much more competition, much more efficiency. But the point is you need to get the money there in the first place. So to get the money there involves certain costs. Um, you know, there's a spread in the currency, which Dawn won't, you know, will minimize for you if you use a forex provider. There's, there's a lot of costs. But I would say that the actual investment management cost, if I ignore a lot of the other frictional costs, uh, is not more. Uh, in offshore space um, than, than it is in South Africa. I think in many cases it's actually lower. But the point is the experience of a South African client to get the money offshore in the first place. So let me just mention one which hopefully makes total sense. If you invest in a feeder fund, including our own feeder fund, um, you know, there are additional costs because the feeder fund is housed, is housed in South Africa. On the South African platform, there are local administrative and compliance requirements. You know, and unfortunately, those things cost money. So uh, an investment in the local feeder fund uh, at Credo um, will cost you something like 1.2 or 1.3% today, whereas if you invested it directly with us, if the money is offshore already, that will be about 1%, under 1%, in fact. Um, and that additional, call it 30 basis points, 0.3%, is essentially the additional cost of the extra layer that is required to get the money out via the feeder structure and, 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 and the subsequent administration and compliance and the like that I've mentioned. Thank you. Dawn, whenever we see or hear about fees, we always hear very small numbers, 1%, 2%, 3%, but these can add up quite quickly, can't they? So how, how would we actually know when 1% is a good fee or half a percent? At what, what, at what stage do you need to be thinking carefully about these fees? Um, the, the quick and e the easiest way to actually determine it from a quotation or something or to ask your 
asset manager, financial manager, um, advisor, whatever, is to get what, what's called an effective annual cost, an EAC. Um, the effective annual cost will add uh, because they are the platform fees, right? Then there's the fund fees, and then there might be the asset manager fees over and above that, and then financial advisory fees, and these these all need to be added up. So if you just look at a fund fact sheet, all you're going to get is the, the cost directly associated with with that fund. It won't give you those platform fees, it won't give you advisory fees, it won't give you, it, it won't be able, it's not allowed to give you performance fees because they change all the time. Um, my preference is to use funds that don't have that are clean that have no performance fees, for example. But um, when you start looking at it, effective annual costs, and I mean, I, I people who read my read my stuff and and listen to me frequently know that um, I will not use an insurance platform, for example, because if you do an effective annual cost with an insurance platform. Um, you can find that those effective annual costs come out at somewhere in the region of about five or six percent, no problem. I mean, which, uh, yeah, you raise your eyebrows, beyond. I kid you not. I can show you examples, you know, uh, the first time I saw it, my jaw hit the table. So um, the, the best thing to do is to ask the provider for an effective annual cost to break down of those fees. And then you add them up and you'll be able to see. And um, you know, a sort of one percent for an offshore fund is is quite reasonable. Um, you know, then you but you know, advisory fees if you've been given advice in terms of what what funds to actually buy, what shares to buy, because I mean, a lot of my clients, for example, have bespoke portfolios rather than you know putting it into unit trusts. Um, and then you know you obviously have an asset manager who gives the advice in order to do that. So the the best thing, the best go to is to ask for an EAC or to find an EAC. Thank you. Now Marie Orally, I think you pronounce it like that, says she's under the age of 55, has a preservation fund, and contributes to an RA. What amount can be taken out of either without paying tax? And if it is possible to withdraw a tax-free amount, would you suggest that the amount be taken out and invested offshore? Or should I take one tax hit, liquidate everything and invest offshore now? So quite a few parts to that question. Um, Dawn, you want to take that one first? Do you want, want me to answer it? Okay, uh, yeah. Um, basically, the, the first question is, is she financially going to financially emigrate or not? Because uh, without financially emigrating under the age of 55, you can't do anything with your RA. OK, so so that has to, to stay here. When it comes to preservers, obviously, you can liquidate them and you but the the tax impact is heavy. You can you know, you're talking about. You know, I mean, there's uh, lump sum tax tables, which you know she's more than happy to um, more than happy to speak to her privately about what those tax tables are. But you know, they start at you have a twenty two and a half thousand tax free amount, but after that it's taxed eighteen percent, twenty seven percent, thirty six percent. You know, so you could potentially lose more than one third of the value of your your funds, uh, which you know would take you forever to to get back that that thirty percent. Um, but once you've liquidated, then you can, sure, you can take that out because it's now being taxed. Uh, you know, it goes through SARS clearance um, and you can take that out. Um, the, the sort of more pertinent question is, you know, once you get to the age of 55, should you leave it as an RA? Should you retire from it? Then you've got annuities and then there's sort of tax implications. Should you want to 
um, you know, financially emigrate in the future. And the other thing to take into account is that uh, Tito did um, intimate that they are going to be looking at the whole uh, regulations around financial immigration is to make them easier. What that means, God knows. But, you know, um, it is a very sort of um, it, it's really in a lot of flux. Thank you. And then Denise wants to know, are there options to transfer a living annuity to an offshore living annuity? So what are the benefits? And Dawn, that sounds like. Could you just repeat the question, Jackie? Sure. The question is, are there options to transfer a current living annuity to an offshore living annuity? So what are the benefits? No, they, uh, you know, um, I know people a lot. I get this question a lot. And no, there isn't. Um, you know, if, if uh, you can, if you financially emigrate, um, you know, the, and and it's already in an annuity, in a compulsory annuity, you are going to be, uh, it, it does become part of the sort of blocked rand um, account. So the only way really that you can speed up getting it out um, is uh, sort of to take the full 17.5%. Before that, um, you know, and you want to, want to take it out and then the, the, there's the tax-free things. That's why um, I, I say to my clients, you know, don't jump to... Um, retiring from your funds before before they um, before really thinking it through really carefully because once it's in an annuity we do have double tax um, scenarios with the UK and you know most a lot, lot of countries around the world um, but actually sort of t taking it and transferring it to the UK and not taking a tax not it, it doesn't really exist okay thank you Dion, another Dion wants to know, please give you a quick assessment on cryptocurrencies. Are these uh, good opportunities or just gambling? How much time do I have, Jackie? <laughs> two minutes. Look, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bit of a controversial question, so I'll try and keep it to two minutes. Um, I, I think the short answer is that you should go there unless you tick both of the following two boxes. One is with a fairly small piece of your portfolio, you know, maybe a percent or so or maybe less. Um, and secondly, uh, you know, do your research and make sure that you have an understanding of what you're investing in. I'm not one of those people who says a, a blanket no. Um, I do think for some people there's a space to, you know, for some exposure. Um, but the bottom line is these things are volatile. They, they're not well understood. They are, and they certainly were a few years ago, lots of, uh, fly-by-nights out there in terms of alternative cryptos. Um, so, yes, I think there is an argument if you know what you're doing and, 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 and if you don't overexpose yourself. I'm, I'm not one of the people that says all of it is a hit and, uh, and a bubble. Um, but I think uh, you need to tread very carefully if you're going to have any exposure in this regard. Um, just to mention that I myself own a little bit of Bitcoin. I own less than one Bitcoin myself. I bought it a few years ago essentially as a bit of a, call it a lottery ticket effect thinking that, you know, if it, if it keeps on going nicely, it'll be nice to participate. Um, but frankly, it's the amount of money um, that, that if it goes to zero is not going to hurt me that much. And if you can say that about your cryptocurrency investment, by all means, you know, go with, with you know, go and expose yourself to it. But I certainly wouldn't overexpose myself to it at all. Thank you. And then Dawn. 
Yep. Sure. Sorry, it looks like we've lost Jackie. Uh, maybe you see Jack, she's still there. Okay, I'm just gonna pick up where he was. Sorry about that, Dawn. Dawn, um, Dawn there's a dog in the background as well. Dawn, there's a question here from Avishka Gordon. and she says, or he says, um, I noted in an interview on the 9th of August, you said buying physical gold is not the way to go. Can you comment? I don't know if you've got anything on the gold story as well, Pia. I, sorry, Stu, I didn't hear that. I've got competition from my menagerie downstairs. Oh, okay, no problem. Um, it's, it's just a, your, your feelings on gold from Avishka. Uh, it says buying physical gold is not the way to go. Some of you noted on the 9th of August interview. I don't know if your feelings have changed around the, the yellow metal. Um, yeah, you know, I think gold had its, you know, had its time at the moment. You know, um, I think there are other commodities, um, if you want to call gold a commodity, which is debatable, um, that are probably more interesting than gold right now. Um, you know, um, those other commodities, as um, demand picks up again um, in, the, in the various economies around the world, and there is a lot of money going into infrastructure, or we'll talk about a lot of money going into infrastructure all over the globe um, in order to boost economies and really to put people into work. So um, gold is more of a kind of a hedge, and it, it certainly played a role over sort of a two and a half month basis, and it's now sort of tapered off. I, um, you know, my our, our clients' um, portfolios are more um, sort of weighted more to some of the other commodities other than gold at this point in time. Exactly. Thanks, Donald. Good. Yeah. So your thoughts? No, I just want to say, I mean, I, I think gold is, is a little bit like crypto, actually. Um, you know, it's a, it's a religion, and you get people in different churches. You get those that love it and those who, oh, who don't. I, I happen to be of the religion that doesn't particularly like gold, and I've been in that church since 1998. Warren Buffett famously said that, you know, gold gets dug out of the ground in Africa or someplace, and then we melt it down and we dig another hole. We bury it again and pay people to stand around guarding it. It has no utility, and anyone watching from Mars would be scratching their head. So I read that in 1998, 1998, and I haven't really worried about gold too much. And then more recently, Warren Buffett went and bought gold, and people are saying, you know, this proves, you know, he's changed his mind, it's time to buy gold. But to those people, I say his investment in Barry Gold uh, a month ago was something like $500 million. Now, that may sound like a lot of money to people on the call, but that is 0.1% of, of Berkshire Hathaway's market capitalization. So it's one thousandth of the company. That's, that's hardly a hedge for the rest of their portfolio. So, so yes, I think gold has had a has had a good time. I think ultimately, like many things in investments, the price has driven the sentiment and the narrative. Um, will it keep on going? Time will tell. Um, but uh, but Stanley Druckenmiller said, you know, there are many shoes on the shelf. We're only the the ones that fit, and and the gold shoe doesn't fit me. So, you know, if you're in, in that church, you know, good luck to you, and you would have done well the last few months. Um, but it's not something I would rush to buy today. Excellent, thanks, Jim. Um, I see Jackie's unfortunately her computer's crashed and she won't be able to come back. And I see that was the last question. So I think it's probably a good time to end the webinar now. Um, thanks for your time there and your and your input. It's always appreciated. And to the thanks, attendees, uh, the, we will post the YouTube on uh, the video on the YouTube channel in the next hour or two, so you can catch up on any input that you might have missed. But thanks again, both, and I hope you have a lovely weekend. Thank you. Okay. Right. Bye. Bye. -bye.